The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church and look at chapter 5. And in the two previous messages on this text, we've discussed the differences between two types of people. Now, in our culture, we're used to hearing that there are multiple types of people. We are a very diverse society. The rights of diverse people, according to their ethnicities, their race, their sexual preferences or perversions, as it may be, are thought to be those things that make us very, very different from each other. The world's population is dissimilar. It's made up of many different types of people according to their physical characteristics. In the gender debate, we've learned that there are some people who identify as things that no one has ever heard of before. Uh, This unnatural diversity is nothing but a mask for sexual deviance, nothing which is nothing more than a subcategory of a major category that's labeled sin. And with this much diversity, we're told that the world is so different that God must have created this way and that it's all very good according to the original creation. But you might be shocked to learn that the Creator did not say that the way we are now is all very good. And neither did He grant inalienable rights to those who falsely choose their own identity. God is not radically diverse. He's assigned two different types of people physically... That would be male and female, and two different types of people spiritually. Either they are his people or they are not. Either they are saved or they're lost. Either they live in the light of his salvation in Jesus Christ or they live in the darkness of condemnation without him. Now, our messages the past couple of weeks have been about this very narrow spiritual and moral diversity. And there are not hundreds of different types of people. There are only two. With 7 billion people that live on this planet, in God's eyes, there are only two types of people. The Apostle Paul uh, described it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5. His letter is addressed to the Lord's church in the Greek city of Thessalonica. They are saved. They are regenerated believers in Jesus Christ. And these are ones that he calls his brethren. And then there are those that are outside the church. And they are not brethren. They need salvation in Christ. Now, if you look in 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse number 4, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Now, he's speaking of the day of the Lord, when Christ comes back. Ye are all the children of the light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore... Comfort yourselves together and edify one another, 
even as ye also do. Thessalonica was an important city in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. It was home to about 200,000 people, located on the Via Ignatia, the major east-west trade route. And so there were travelers from all parts of the empire that passed through this area. And because of this, the culture of the city was, was what? It was very diverse. There were many different kinds of people that were in the mix of the population. And as Paul went there to preach the gospel of Christ, there were many of these different types of people that became members of the church, and so the church was made up of this great diversity. But when Paul wrote to the, to the church, he didn't regard the ethnicities and all the other mixtures, but his contrast in this passage is restricted to two types of people. They are the children of the day, or they are the children of the night. They are either in the light, or they are in darkness. Now, the distinction here is, is brethren. He calls them brethren. That's the believers. These are children of the light. These are people that have believed in the gospel of Christ. And others, though, remained as they were. The others are different because they're still in the condemnation of their sins. Now, the important point that Paul makes in, in the beginning of this passage is the others. He says the others are headed for destruction. That, that's in verse number 3. Sudden destruction comes upon them. They would experience the wrath of God in that day when Christ comes to judge the world. Now, in our many, many previous messages, we've been talking about that time. The world has an expiration date that only God knows. And when the end comes, God will bring this world to a close with a series of cataclysmic events. Most of the world's population is, as Paul describes them, they're living in darkness and they are under the wrath of God. And they have no idea of the precarious condition they're in. And so they go on day by day thinking that the world is all about them, thinking that tomorrow is just like today, everything is just fine. And again, these are the ones in verse number 3 who say peace and safety, not knowing that there is nothing peaceful or safe about their lost condition. As the great preacher Jonathan Edwards said, they hang over the precipice of a burning hell with nothing so much as a thin spider's web that holds them, and soon their feet will slip and they'll fall into that fiery pit. Paul said that sudden destruction comes on them. And so he refers to the end and how people will be caught without warning. They won't know what hit them until it's too late. And I would remind you that it's our duty as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to warn people. They haven't heard of this. They don't know about it. And the best that we can do for them is not feed them. It's not clothe them and not make them wealthy. The very best that we can do for anyone is to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ because they just don't know. Now, you, you understand that there is no one who has lived to see the end of the world. We're still living in the world. People die every day without seeing the Lord's return. They won't see it. They haven't experienced it. They won't see all the terrible judgments that the Bible describes will come in the end. And so the question has to be, do we really need to be concerned about all of that now? And we remember here that Paul wrote to people 2,000 years ago, and he wrote it as if these things would happen in their lifetime. He wrote it with a sense of urgency. He warned them, there is a day coming, and they, and they should be ready. 
But still that question is out there. Is there a need for you to be concerned? Because it doesn't look like the end of the world is coming. But I will tell you this, the day of your death is coming. And when that day of death comes, you might not see all the terrible things that will happen at the end, but it's certain that the day of your death fixes for all eternity the state that you are in. And either you are in the eternal, perpetual darkness of hell, or you live in the light of the glorious gospel of Christ and enjoy the bliss of heaven. What you do with the information that you receive from the Word of God in messages just like this, determines God's favor upon you or his wrath upon you. Now, in this text, Paul established the difference between these two types of people. He says the children of the light are different people than the children of darkness. The day and night, the light and dark motif describes the difference because there isn't anything as starkly different as day and night. Light and darkness don't live together. Light dispels Darkness, Light doesn't exist with darkness. And so the point is that God's people are starkly different from the world. And it is the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ that drives that difference. We're different in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our beliefs about our purpose. And we understand that God's purpose is our purpose. Now, in the last two messages, the differences were discussed... And there were three defining categories. First, the difference between ignorance and understanding. That's the difference in what we know about God and our spiritual condition before God. Secondly, we looked at a difference uh, between blindness and sight. Uh, there are different spheres. And, and our eyes are, have been opened to spiritual truths, whereas those that are in the darkness can never see those truths without God touching them and giving them sight. But then thirdly, the most important contrast in relation to this passage is wickedness versus righteousness. Paul's major concern in the passage is the morality of believers. How do you live? How do you live in the light of the return of Jesus Christ? And he says, you're not in darkness any longer. So you can't live like you're in darkness. We can't live that way because our salvation in Christ doesn't permit it. We live for Christ in, in order to reflect his glory. And that's tied to the fact that Christ is coming back to this world where he will be glorified over this entire earth. And so what does he expect us to be when he returns? And as our series of messages describes, what is it like to live in the light of Christ's return? Now, those are questions that are in the background, and today I'd like us to look at verses 9 through 11 that finish out this section. And here we come to a critically important theological discussion that shows us that God himself is the one who makes the distinction between the children of the day and the children of the night. God did something to make that distinction. Now, I need you to stay with me today. Don't sleep today. Listen very carefully. I don't want you to get lost in this discussion. Let me show you first, very important for you to know, that salvation is guaranteed by God's appointment. Salvation is guaranteed by God's appointment. In verse number 9, Paul says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not appointed to wrath. God appointed believers to salvation. 
Wrath, of course, is the outcome of unfavorable judgment. And I believe it's very clear from the context that Paul means the intense wrath of tribulation that comes on this earth, all those horrible events that happen at the end, those cataclysmic events that we've discussed. He's speaking of tribulation. And his letter to the church uh, is to tell them that they're not going to be on the earth when that happens. He, he talks about that. He, he discusses the rapture in chapter 4. And he ensures them that when Christ comes, he will come before this great and terrible day of the Lord begins. In chapter 1, verse number 10, he said that Christ delivers us from the wrath to come. And then he goes on in the following chapters to describe how Christ will find the church in that day. And it's comforting. It is comforting as believers in in Jesus Christ as part of his church to know that we're not going to experience that destruction when, when God purges the world. And so in his discussion of the rapture in chapter 4, he ends in verse number 11 there telling the church to take comfort in this. Comfort yourself with this information that Christ returns and you won't go through all this terrible tribulation that's coming. And I'm for sure, I'm convinced that the context demands that interpretation. But I also believe that the meaning is broadened as Paul tells us that we need to understand that God does not intend that his children will experience final destruction in the fires of hell. Now, a temporary deliverance only from earthly consequences is never the only type of salvation that God gives. Salvation always has three components. There's a past, present, and future application. We're saved from the sins of the past, all those things that we have done, those things that condemned us. Then we're being saved in the present from the overwhelming forces of evil that are against us. And then we will be saved, that's the future tense, we will be saved in the future to be glorified with Jesus Christ. Now an almost identical verse is in Romans 5 verse 9. Where Paul wrote, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, if you're familiar with Romans, Paul's subject there is not tribulation. His subject is the eternal state of the soul. And we notice there that God has not appointed us to wrath. That is a past tense. That's a past action. God knows his people. He's always known them. And so before the creation of the world, he knew what all of his people would do. And he chose these Christians and he gave them this appointed destiny. It is not the wrath of hell, but it is to obtain their salvation. Now, the obvious uh, import to that statement is that in the past, before you were born, God appointed, God appointed you to obtain your salvation. Now, a very important Uh, verse in Paul's theology is 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. There he writes, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Who obtains salvation? Well, he tells us, the elect of God. And they are elect before they have salvation because they're yet to obtain it. That's clear from Paul's determination to endure everything that was necessary to be sure that they would hear the gospel and they would believe and they would obtain. I don't know how Paul could be clear on, the, on this point that the choice to obtain their salvation is before their belief to obtain salvation. I'm sure 
you know that many teach that all have access to salvation and all have it by their own choice and by their own choice they obtain it. That is not what Paul says here. He says that in the past we were chosen and then God works out all the details so that there would be a time and there would be a place that we would obtain the salvation that we have been appointed to. And so the elect will not experience the wrath of God. They were never headed for destruction. At no time was that destiny in doubt. At least not in God's mind. In God's mind, there's never a doubt what will happen to those that he has chosen. In our minds, we don't know. Because we don't know that we've been chosen. Not until the point that we believe. The Bible says that we were all the children of disobedience as others. And if God had not stepped in, if God had not intervened, we would surely perish. Now, although we trust Christ now, and we were appointed to it, and we were given repentance and faith, we have not yet reached our final salvation. Just as wrath is a future event, so is our final salvation when we will be glorified with Jesus Christ. Now, we obtain salvation in this life by repentance and faith, and the outcome of salvation is securely guaranteed. That's our future. Do you know that? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been appointed to that belief. Your future is you can't miss heaven. You're going to be there. We cannot come into condemnation. That's what the Word of God says. And so you can see that our election in Christ far back in the past is the undergirding. It's the sure foundation of our security. And the old theologians in Baptist churches recognized that. And they always used it as the strongest proof that our salvation can never be lost. Our election in the past guaranteed our eternal life in the future. And so any argument that says that salvation can be lost is crushed by this doctrine of divine appointment. And so you can understand why those who oppose eternal security will never believe in eternal election. They believe, they deny rather, that God pointed us, appointed us to obtain salvation. And folks, that's a major distinction in our teaching and that of others. We see God's eternal plan devised before the first act of creation. The Godhead did not create the world and then say, let's see how this turns out. Let's, let's experiment. Let's see whether this is going to work for our advantage or our disadvantage. Now, friends, there is a divine objective in the creation, and that objective is God's glory. So he ensured that when he created, that on the other end of this, when all of it's done, that he would have a people for his name that would give him glory. And that outcome was never in question. It's always been established because he chose those that he created to bring him glory. Although they would be born as all others, and though they would come into this world with a sinful nature, and though they would go through hardships and sufferings, and though they would need to be brought to repentance and faith, they would never die until they have obtained the salvation that they were appointed to. Paul said, I suffer all these things for the preaching of the gospel. I endure all the hardships. I've, I've been deprived. I've been stoned. I've been imprisoned. I've been shipwrecked. I've gone through all these terrible perils. Why, he says, so the elect may obtain their salvation. Now here it is again in his letter to Timothy in the 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, 
but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus when? Before the world began. So what does Paul do here in 1 Thessalonians 5? Well, he brings all of this information together for their assurance. His purpose in writing this letter is to answer his many questions about the church, about persecution and the end times. What happens to Christians who die before the Lord returns? And Paul says, you don't need to worry about it. You trusted Christ. God said that you'll never go through any of these things that you worry about. And your suffering is only temporary. Whether you live or die, you belong to the Lord. You have been appointed to obtain your glorious final salvation. Now look how he puts another stamp on this marvelous truth. What is the basis for all of this? And when we talk about election and all these doctrines, what is the basis for it? What is the basis of salvation? What did God do to ensure that all of this works out in its perfect justice? We see it in verse number 10. Who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So number two, salvation is guaranteed by Christ's death. Christ died for us. Now, would you take just a moment to think on that? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, would you say that with me? Christ died for us. Can we say that? Christ died for us. That's what the Word of God says. Christ died for us. And that's what Paul says to the believers, to the brethren. Christ died for us. Who teaches that Christ's death guarantees salvation? We do. Most people don't. Most people don't believe that Christ's death guaranteed anything but a chance to be saved. Not us. Because we read this text just as it's written. Christ died for us. Now can you see how this follows verse number 9 as a, as a natural supportive statement? Why will we obtain our salvation? Because Christ died for us. So how does that work if we don't obtain salvation? How does anyone say, Christ died for me, and then they don't obtain salvation? When Paul says that we obtain salvation because Christ died for us. Now most don't believe that Christ's death is a guarantee because it's not enough to obtain salvation. But it's either that the death of Christ was not enough, or this us that he uses here is a qualified us that fits the entire scope of the passage. And what is the scope? What is he talking about? It's that diversity between two types of people. It's the children of the day or the children of the night. In other words, it's either us or them. That's the diversity. It's either us or them, either believers or unbelievers. Now look at verse number 9 again. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you are in the habit of writing in your Bible, underline or circle the word us. We obtain our salvation because of the Lord Jesus Christ through him. We, us. Now, in verse number 10, it says, Christ died for us, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. For God hath not appointed us to wrath. Underline us, circle us. He died for us who obtained salvation so that we will not experience his wrath. Now don't get lost in this. I'm showing you how to interpret the scripture in context. Now look at verse number 3. For when they shall say, peace and safety, 
Then sudden destruction cometh upon them. There you can underline the word them. Would you say that them is the same as us? No. There's a contrast. He's speaking of them and us. That's the diversity. And this diversity goes back into chapter 4. If you'll look at verse number 14 in chapter 4, he says, For if we believe, that's believers, that's us. In verse 15, we which are alive and remain. In verse 17, we which are alive and remain. And in both of those places, the us in chapter 5 verses 9 and 10 is we the believers. So you can't put them in verse number 3. You can't put them in chapter 5 verses 9 and 10 any more than you can put them in the rapture in chapter 4. That's the diversity. We are not the same as them. Now return to verse number 9. Let's see if it's possible for us to make this passage all-inclusive. So we're going to read it inclusively. For God hath not appointed us and them to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us and them, that whether we or they wake or sleep, we and they should live together with him. Does that work in any sense? That can't work. Do you see what that does? It makes the whole discussion about daylight and dark, belief and unbelief, saved or unsaved, a non sequitur. So, so what happens because of Christ's death? Do you see this? What happens because of his death? He says, we live with him because of his death. We fellowship with him because of his death. And so you can write that down, that this is one of the designs of Christ's death. He died for us so that we will obtain salvation and we will live with him forever. Now, this statement that he died for us has multiple implications. He died for us. That is, he died in our place. He took God's wrath for us. He satisfied God's justice for us. We'll not experience judgment because he died for us. Now, I'd like to look at this for just a minute to to see what God expected would happen because of the, or as a consequence of Christ's death. And not only the consequence for us, But what are the consequences for the Son? Well, let's enumerate the benefits of Christ's death. Let me start with those that are directly indicated in the passage. What are the benefits of Christ's death? Number one, we escape from wrath. We escape from wrath. Now, we don't need to spend much time here. This runs through the entire epistle. Wrath is coming, and the object is to explain that Christ's people need not fear it, Because they're delivered through faith in Christ. The world will experience it because they're different from us. But Christ died for us so that we will escape wrath. Our punishment was put on Christ so that we don't take it ourselves. So why do any receive wrath? It's because they don't have the benefit of Christ's death. Christ died for us. Number two, we obtain salvation. That's a benefit of Christ's death. We obtain salvation. We didn't have it before. Salvation doesn't happen until we believe, and we must believe something, mustn't we? Well, there are some who say, well, you just got to have faith, man. Got to have faith. Just have faith. Things are going to get better. Faith in what? Faith must have an object. And what is the object? Paul tells us in chapter 4, verse 14, for if we believe, believe what? That Jesus died, that Christ died for us, that he died and arose from the dead. 
Now we have a living Christ. He's alive. And so the text says in verse number 10 that we will live together with him. So the benefit of Christ's death is that you obtain salvation by which you will live with Christ. So you see, his death has this built-in benefit. It must happen for all whom Christ died. Number three is that we are justified from sin. We are sinners. Do we doubt that? No honest person can. The only one who denies that he is a sinner is one who doesn't know what sin is. Oh, many people believe they are just good people, at least good enough in comparison to others. But God doesn't compare us to others. He compares us to his son. And anyone who falls short of that standard is not good enough. So if we honestly evaluate the commandments, we, we find that we've broken them all. Sin is the transgression of God's law. We're all guilty. We're all subject to God's justice. And that justice satisfies the penalty of the law. So what did Christ's death do? It justified us. Justified who? Us. Romans 5 verse 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him, through his blood. That means his death. We, that's us, we are justified by his death. Those that he died for, he justifies because that is the purpose of his death. Romans 4.25 says, Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Justified. That's a legal term. As if we're standing in a courtroom, God says you're not guilty. Who is not guilty? Those whose sins have been taken away by Christ's death and resurrection. Christ took them away. And then fourthly, listen to Romans 5, verse 10. For if when they were enemies, we are rather we, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So what else does his death do? We are reconciled to God. That's number four. We are reconciled to God. Christ's death reconciles us to God. Now notice again, we, who? We, not them. There's no benefit in Christ's death for them. They aren't considered. It's we. We are reconciled to God. We were once God's enemies, but now we are his friends. We were hostile to him, and now we love him. We were strangers, but now we're his children. And Christ's death made us that way. It reconciled us. And let me just ask, who's responsible for that reconciliation? Did we do it? Did any action that, that I took, did that do it? No. Well, the lost didn't take any action either. So what's the difference between us and them? If it was our action, then reconciliation would not be dependent on Christ. So the obvious conclusion is there's no reconciliation for them because the object of Christ's death was not to reconcile them. It reconciles us, the ones that his death was designed to reconcile. That's God's action, not ours. Number five, we are sanctified to live for Christ. Our text in verse 10 says, Christ died for us that we would live together with him. Now the main intent of his death is that we would live with him in eternity. But I'd have to ask you, don't we live with him now? We do. And because we do, Paul says Christians are to watch and be sober. Sober as, is, as it's compared to being uncontrolled. And we are controlled, aren't we? That's because we have the Holy Spirit in us. We're controlled by the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is our sanctification. 
So we receive graces that are the first fruits of our final salvation and our ultimate sanctification is that glorification that we have with Christ. Then we are entirely sanctified. Listen to Paul in Galatians 1 verse 4, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Can I just ask you, is Paul being consistent about Christ's death? He gave himself for our sins. Whose? Us. For us, not, not theirs. To do what? To deliver us from this present evil world. Again, Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. He gave himself to redeem us and purify us. So do you see the object of Christ's death? What does it do? Is this true for anyone but us? Our sanctification is also in 1 Peter 2, verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. He bore our sins to make us righteous. We are healed by his stripes. Oh, but others say... Well, no, his stripes don't heal. There's some that Christ died for, and they go to hell. And there's no guarantee because Christ's death didn't heal anybody. Doesn't God know what he's talking about? God says, it did heal us. Those for whom Christ died, his death heals us. The death of Christ is vicarious. He expected, or he, he, he experienced all our infirmities that he might heal us in his death. Then here's another clincher that you don't want to miss. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. The just suffered for the unjust to bring us to God. Did he do that or did he not? Well, you look at the passage and you have to say, well, all of us are unjust, aren't we? Every one of us is unjust. There is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. So which unjust are brought to God? Did he die for some that he couldn't bring to God? It can only be those that Christ died for because all are not brought to God. And so it must be the ones that were unjust. The ones that are unjust are the ones that are appointed to salvation. These are the unjust that Christ died for. And then let me finish with this last thought. Now, we we could go on and on because there's so many passages that define the design of Christ's death. We benefit from his death. Isn't that not true? If you're saved here today, you benefit from his death. But is that the most important thing in the death of Christ? Well, the answer to the question is actually no. The most important thing is the benefit that Christ receives, that he receives complete satisfaction. Just like the words of that song said, Christ will have the prize for which he died. So I'd like to finish then with the benefit of Christ's death for him. And that's number six. Christ is satisfied. That's a benefit of Christ's death. Isaiah 53, 11, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Christ is satisfied by his death because he justifies all his people. All the ones that he gave his life for. Not one of them is lost. He died for their sins and his death justified them. 
So the satisfaction of Christ is his accomplishment of saving his people. And he's not satisfied unless all of them are saved. The travail is the suffering and death. And so did he go through that to fail to justify anyone? No, he's satisfied because his death did all that it was intended to do. He died to justify people in order that they would glorify him. Now finally, our text says, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Now look at that phrase, whether we wake or sleep. In chapter 4, that was the question. Are those that sleep, and there the word sleep means those that died, will they be a part of Christ's kingdom? And the answer is yes, whether they're living or dead when Christ comes, they will be in the kingdom of Christ. And so what is the conclusion of all this wonderful news that Paul has just laid out here for us? Christ died for us to guarantee all of these benefits. And so what should we do with this glowing report? In verse 11, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Comfort each other. Build each other up by thinking of this glorious truth that Christ loved you so much that he died for you. Did he die for them? No, they're different. They're in the darkness and you are children of the light. Christ died that you would obtain your salvation. So if Christ died for those who perish, then what's the comfort for Christians? Might they perish too? If Christ died for the others too, might the Christian perish? No. You see, this thing keeps recycling itself right back to the same information. You will not perish because Christ died for you. Sudden destruction comes on them because they're not his people. You see, the hope of the Christian is that Christ did all, that he took care of all, that he guaranteed all, and there is nothing that's dependent on us. And so who makes the difference between these two types of people? Only Christ. He calls, he gives repentance and faith, he justifies, he sanctifies, he glorifies, and he's satisfied because he makes his own satisfaction. So we take comfort in this, that salvation is all of Christ. He took care of all of it for you. He died for you to do what no one else could do. And so what do you do with this information? Comfort your soul. I'll live for him who died for me. How happy then my life shall be. I'll live for him who died for me, my Savior and my God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word, for the promises that come from your word. Lord, we, we thank you that you make this so clear to us. If we just sit and read and understand and compare scripture with scripture, we come to realize what a wonderful thing that you've done for us, those who believe in you. We didn't know it until one day the Holy Spirit convicted our hearts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there still remains questions in people's minds, I'm sure, um, someone might ask, well, how do I know that Christ died for me? How do I know that I can go to heaven? And the answer is very clearly given in the scriptures. All that a person must do is to believe. And when a person believes, then he knows that Christ died for him, that that person who receives Christ as Savior was appointed to obtain the salvation. That's your work, not ours. And so we encourage anyone today, Lord, who's heard this message, not to think about, did Christ die for me? Not to think about, uh, is it possible that I've missed that? 
No, just to believe. That's all that we're required to do. We're not to evaluate ourselves in any other way except that do we believe. And if we believe, then we know Christ died for us. It's the simple truth of the scripture. Salvation is available to those who believe. Thank you, Lord, for the message that you've given us from your word today. Bless us, help us, help us be encouraged in this word of Christ to edify one or build each other up, comfort one another with the words of the apostle. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.